So we're in the third week of a sermon series on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And Rebecca and I chose to preach on this letter because we've noticed that there are communities around the nation, and that of course includes churches that are struggling to remember how to be together after the pandemic. And the Corinthian church is a good one to study because they had a lot of problems trying to be community. Paul had founded this congregation, but he had moved on to another city to start a new church, but he was visited by friends from Corinth, and they would tell him about all of these problems in this church, the bitter fighting, the judgmentalism, the classism. Members were literally taking people to court. This letter is a remarkable account of Paul trying to rekindle connection and love among these Christians. And as I said last week, the way he does this is to remind them of what they already know, which is the gospel. Why should they get along? Because Christ died for them. Why should the rich care about the poor? Because Christ became poor for their sake. Why should they love one another? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What we see in this letter is that no matter what the problem is, the solution is always the same, and that's the gospel. But then we have to ask, okay, the gospel's the solution, fine. But what happens if people don't believe the gospel? I mean, then we have a real problem. What do you do with people who say, this story about Jesus, the death and resurrection of Christ, that sounds nice, but I just don't believe that it actually happened. The Corinthians had this problem too. I mean, I think we tend to think that doubt is a modern phenomenon. It's not. There were people in the Corinthian church who thought the gospel was nonsense. And that's what we might call a foundational problem because this is at the root of everything we do. If people can't believe in this foundation, then why have church in the first place? So we're going to look at what Paul has to say about this problem. This is from the first chapter of Corinthians, verses 18 to 25. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts on this your holy word be acceptable in your sight and life-giving to us and through us as your people. Amen. So Paul says that for people who don't get it, for people who are in fact perishing, the gospel is foolishness. The Greek word is moriah, 
The English word that derives from Moriah is moron. So let me make it clear. Paul is saying that the gospel is moronic to a significant number of people, which means he understands, he gets it, why people doubt this story. It's, in fact, the same reason why people doubt today. I think there are three primary ways in which people doubt the gospel today for intellectual reasons, for cultural reasons, and for religious reasons. And I'd like to just go through them one at a time. So number one, intellectual doubt about the gospel. And I can speak to this personally because I spent much of my 20s as an atheist. And at that time in my life, I thought that the stories of the Bible were fairy tales. And in much of Western society, this is simply accepted wisdom. God is a fantasy that people imagine because it makes them feel better. But just like Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny, he doesn't really exist. I didn't have this in my sermon, but it reminds me of a, there was an atheist group in England a few years ago that had this view, and they wanted to promulgate this view, and so they bought an advertisement on buses that would drive around England, and the buses said, God probably doesn't exist, just get over it. Um, Well, in fact, many atheists would say that it's worse than this that it's actually harmful to believe such things. Here's a quote from Christopher Hitchens, who was the late British journalist. He was one of the more vocal atheist debaters of his age, and this is what he wrote. To believe that a virgin can conceive, that a dead body can walk again, that your leprosy can be cured, it's nonsense. And then he adds, it's not moral to lie to children. It's not moral to lie to ignorant, uneducated people and tell them that if only they would believe nonsense, they would be saved. It's, in fact, immoral. And guess what? There were people in the ancient world who had similar questions. I mean, why do you think that Paul, before his conversion, persecuted the church? It's because he thought that Christianity was immoral. He thought that he was actually doing God's will by ridding the world of the nonsense of Christianity. And of course, it was only after he had a personal experience, a vision of Christ, that he came to believe that this foolish seeming story was in fact true. And he spent the rest of his life preaching the gospel, but he never forgot how foolish it had seemed to him before his conversion. And so Paul understood something that I think is really important for all of us to understand, that the gospel never makes sense until after you're changed by it. Augustine, the brilliant philosopher, put it this way. He said, that I, he said, I believe so that I might understand. I believe first so that over time I might begin to understand what that belief is based in. That is an amazing insight. He's saying that first we take a leap of faith to trust something, and then because our lives are changed by this faith, it slowly begins to make some sense to our minds. But the heart comes first. Another person commented on this, C.S. Lewis. He said, I believe in God the way I believe the sun has risen, not only because I can see it. In fact, I can't look directly at the sun, but by the light of the sun, I see everything else. And so if you have intellectual questions about Christianity, I would say join the club. 
When we talk about the incarnation and the resurrection and the Holy Spirit's activity of the world, of course, we're talking about profound mysteries. If we could grasp God with our limited minds, how great would he really be? I mean, I think that a God that we could explain would not be a very powerful God. So there are intellectual problems with the message about the cross, but there are also cultural problems, as we will see in some of the future sermons in this series. Paul is going to ask the Corinthians to give up certain things that they really like doing. Paul will say, if you've been freed by the gospel, you can't engage in exploitative sexual relationships. They liked doing that. Paul will say to them, if you have been changed by the gospel, you can no longer get drunk and act inappropriate with your sisters and brothers at the communion meal. That was something they liked to do. In this church, the rich like to lord over the poor. Paul will say to them, if you are in Christ, you can't do that. And of course, to many of them, on a cultural level, this was foolishness. Why should they stop doing something that they liked to do? And I'll ask people in this room, Don't many of us today ask the same question? I like spirituality, but I would prefer that you don't ask me questions about money. That's private. That's my business. I like the idea of God, but I don't really want anybody asking me about my sexual life. That's private. The gospel kind of sounds nice, but don't ask me to forgive my enemies. I like my anger. So there were cultural issues about the message of the cross. There were also religious objections. Let's just say people could take a leap of faith to believe this strange story about the death and resurrection of Christ. They would still ask the question, how could we possibly worship a God who was crucified? Because crucifixion was the most humiliating fate that any person could experience in ancient Rome. The entire point of it was public shame, and that's why people were stripped naked before they were put onto the cross. The Romans wanted to embarrass them. How could you look at a tortured, naked body on a cross and say to people, that's my God? Can you see how foolish this seemed to people? Now, here's a historical example. Recently in Rome, there was um, an archaeologist who discovered ancient graffiti scratched on a stone wall. And before you ask, yes, people in the ancient world drew graffiti in public places, just like today on South Street. This graffiti dates from the year 200, which was a time in which the church was growing underground but was still being persecuted. The graffiti depicts a man nailed to a cross with the head of a donkey. Next to him is a man worshiping this donkey man. And underneath this picture are the words Alexamenos, it's a word Alex in our modern language, Alexamenos worships his God. You see, this graffiti is mocking Christians. It's depicting Jesus as an ass, and then the idea that a man named Alexamenos would worship a donkey, would call that person God, was simply laughable to many people in the ancient world, because of course God was supposed to be powerful, not weak. God is supposed to win, not lose. And here's my question for you today. If I told you that there was something that could change your life, but that you won't understand it yet, would you be open to it? If you saw other people whose lives were changing as a result of this strange truth, could you entertain it 
before you understand it. I think that's really the truth of the Christian faith. That's the operative question as we become interested in Jesus. But I think the truth is that we do this all the time, and the best example is falling in love. People give their hearts to one another all the time before they know how it's going to work out. That's called faith. It's trust, in fact, that makes life worth living, isn't it? You love someone first in order to understand them later. If you go into a relationship and and you say, I will not give you my heart unless I understand you completely, you'll never give them your heart because you'll never fully understand them. What you'll do is you'll look at the results. Does this person, does being with this person make you feel safe and loved and respected and appreciated? And it's the same with the Christian faith. You don't have to understand it, but the proof is in the pudding. Does faith bring you meaning and hope and peace? And that's what Christ does. He changes your life. And you slowly go from thinking the gospel is utter foolishness to understanding that it's the very power of God. So let me take two examples of what I think this looks like, one from our own time and one from the ancient world. The one from our own time is going to be taken from Alcoholics Anonymous. If you know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous, you know that the first step is admitting that you are powerless. You have to admit that although that no matter how smart you think you are, you can't intellectually think your way into sobriety. You can intellectually see that your drinking is killing you, but that thought won't make you stop drinking. The only thing that will help is if you confess that you're not as smart as you think you are. And can you see how that is foolishness to a lot of people and why often it's the smartest people who have the most trouble staying sober? Because they have such a hard time giving up their own understanding. And I've read these hilarious stories in which people will come to an AA meeting and they'll say, I have a PhD, I've written books, I'm going to figure this out by myself. And the old timers in the room just chuckle. And they say, okay, go try. Go try to use your own intelligence and your own wisdom to get sober. And eventually these brilliant people will realize that in order to save their lives, they have to trust a God that they don't understand, a God that they can't see, a God that they probably don't initially believe in. But that's the next two steps, that they make a decision to turn their will and their lives over to the care of that God. And that means accepting a story that they once regarded as utter foolishness, that God is real, that something you can't see with your eyes is more powerful and more present than the things that you can see. But it's no wonder that the Corinthians were struggling, is it? Because it's the same struggle today. What Paul is saying to them is the simple truth that the church either lives or dies on the basis of the gospel. If Jesus was raised, then there is literally nothing more important in life than knowing and serving him. And if it didn't happen, then we should close the church and we should go out and find out where the truth really is. Because this building could be used for other purposes. You know, we hear a lot about postmodernism today in which... People have different truths. You have your truth, I have mine, and that is fine as far as it goes. But not when it comes to this. Either Christ rose or he didn't, and if he did, life has endless meaning. And if he didn't, then we just need to figure out where the truth is. What Paul is saying is that the way to determine which of those things is right 
is by your life. When you trust this story, does the power of God come into your life? Do you get sober? Do you do the kinds of things with God's help that you couldn't do by yourself? That, according to Paul, is how we know the truth. Here's another question. If I asked you to imagine a God that makes sense to our human mind, what kind of God would you come up with? The answer is that you'd come up with every God that has ever been imagined in human history except for the real God. It would be a God with power who defeats his enemies. That was every religion in the ancient world except for Judaism. Because Judaism had these strange stories about a God who was willing to descend into human life and interact with sinful people and bless those people and forgive those people and love those people. And what that means is that God has always been the God of the cross. And this is one of Martin Luther's great legacies, that God in his identity has always been crucified. The crucifixion wasn't just one event that happened once on a hill in Palestine. When God created the world, he was crucified because the cross is what real love looks like. The most profound stories of the Old Testament written centuries before the birth of Christ show us a crucified God. Let me tell you one of those stories. Some of you know the story of Jacob, fascinating character, one of my favorite characters in Scripture. From the moment he was born, Jacob was a wrestler, metaphorically. And what I mean is that he was always scheming and conning and fighting with people. He wrestled with his father. He tricked his father into giving him a blessing that was meant for his older brother. He wrestled with his older brother. His older brother was furious at him for taking what was supposed to be his, told him he was going to kill him. Jacob flees the house in fear. Goes to his uncle's house. He then wrestles with his uncle because his uncle ends up tricking him, giving him the wrong woman as his wife. Jacob has to work another seven years to get the woman that he really loves. So throughout the story of Jacob, we get a picture of a man who's trying to get ahead in life with his own intelligence, his own hard work, carrying out these elaborate plots, working for 14 years to become married. He's relentless, always trying to get ahead, and yet despite monumental intellectual and physical efforts, Jacob is not satisfied. Finally, he decides to do something new. He decides to let go, and some of you know this story. He encounters a strange figure by the river one night. They wrestle all night long, and you get the sense that this strange figure is holding back. He's allowing Jacob to fight with him, but it's like when a child is angry and the parent holds them as the child wails until the child finally stops crying. The sun is about to rise. The strange figure touches Jacob's hip. The Greek word says he just barely touches it, and yet it shatters Jacob's hip. He'll never walk again. And that is the first moment we realize the power of this strange figure, that it's actually God that Jacob has been wrestling with. God says to Jacob, the sun is coming up. You, you have to let go. You can't see my face. People who see my face die. But Jacob, in his chutzpah and in his desperation, to see the face of God, says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And then his whole life comes into focus. The reason he's been wrestling with everybody. He wrestles with his father. He wrestles with his brother. He wrestles with everybody because he's trying to get from them the thing that he can only get from God. The whole time, what he really needed was to be blessed by God. 
to turn his will and his life over to the care of this loving God, just like the alcoholic, just like the Corinthians. So Jacob had to trust something that he didn't understand. That's the message of the cross, that God loves you so much he will come down from on high and meet you where you are and wherever you are through tears, through wrestling, through struggle. He's going to bless you. And when we understand this, it doesn't just transform us intellectually, or I'm sorry, individually. It makes community possible. That's why Paul again and again reminds the Corinthians of the gospel, because the message of the cross is the only real foundation we have. And when we can remember that message, we can begin to be the real body of Christ in the world. Let's end in prayer. God, we thank you for overcoming our doubts with your love. We stand in awe of the cross and its paradoxical power, whether we are new to faith or have been wrestling for a long time. We pray for trust and for healing and for life. Amen.